good to be together this morning. Good to have you here. Uh, I'm thrilled that this is a part of your Christmas weekend celebration. So that you chose to be here to uh, to worship together, to sing these songs, to to hear uh, the story, uh, the story that maybe maybe you've heard. You know, if you've you've been in church, you've grown up in church. Maybe you've heard the story of the good news of Jesus for your whole life. Uh, and if that's you, I'm so glad you're here to hear it again. I hope you can hear it with fresh ears. I hope God speaks to you what you need today. Uh, but maybe for some of us, we've never really heard this good news of Jesus, of, of God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus. And so uh, if you're here uh, in that way, I'm so, so thrilled you're here. And I pray that as we, as we tell the story, as we talk about Jesus, that, that you just sense God's love for you. You sense God's presence with you and and God's amazing, amazing love for you. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read uh, three passages here as we begin the sermon this morning. One from Luke chapter 2, one from Matthew uh, chapter 1, and one from Matthew chapter 8. So, so three passages. You can just listen along and let God's Word speak to your heart this morning. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own hometown to register. So Joseph also went to the town of Na- went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and so she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds. They were living out in the fields nearby, and they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, because I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now when the angels had left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and this baby that was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is this one who was born King of the Jews? I I hear him. I know where he is. It's awesome. That's a... Such a beautiful sound. Perfect timing, too. Where is this one who is to be born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. 
And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And finally, from uh, Matthew chapter 5, the words of Jesus, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is, um, I, love, I love the story. I love the story, the good news of, of God becoming flesh, becoming human in Jesus. Uh, the, these stories, they don't get old. They're so incredibly powerful if we allow God's Spirit to speak to us. And one of the things that ha- has been just kind of striking me this year is, um, is how few people actually recognize the miracle that was happening right there in this little town of Bethlehem, right? I, I, how many people um, were, were, like the miracle was available to them. The presence of God was available to them in the presence of this child, Jesus, and yet, they were oblivious to it. They, they weren't aware of it. Um, but there were a few, there were a few pure in heart people who were able to see God, who were able to see the miracle. This is what Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will be able to see God. See, Jesus, um, he was born in a pretty, like, public setting, pretty available. He was not born in the privacy of a hospital room. He was not born in the privacy of a home or even a room at a local hostel or inn. Jesus was born with the livestock. He was born in a fairly public place where people could come and go and put their livestock. Um, and here's the deal. I don't, I don't want to spoil like Christmas for anybody, but, but to just kind of be aware that Jesus was probably not born in a stable, like a wooden barn-like stable. Um, and I realize that kind of ruins our whole series because we're talking about like the stable life and like playing off that whole metaphor. But here's the deal. We keep livestock in barns, in like stables, um, and they're made of wood. Now, here's the problem. In ancient Bethlehem, as in modern Bethlehem, lumber is in pretty short supply, right? So they don't tend to build things out of wood, um, but there is something that is very plentiful in Bethlehem and in the hills around Bethlehem, and those are caves. And where they kept the livestock uh, in ancient Bethlehem were in caves. And so Jesus was probably born in a cave with the livestock. Now, so does that ruin Christmas for anybody? Are you able to kind of still go there? We can still celebrate. That's, that's cool. That's great. Um, but so Jesus was probably born in a cave out on the outskirts of Bethlehem with the livestock. And the thing about a cave is they're not very secure, right? I mean, like you can, there's an entrance to it. You can like, anybody can sort of walk into the cave or look into the cave. And there's Jesus, right? Laying in this manger, this feeding trough in a cave. And, and, and really like anybody could have had access to him, but there were only a few who did. There were only a few who saw him. I mean, Mary saw him and understood the miracle that was happening. Uh, Joseph, you know, his father saw him and saw, like, this is God in, in flesh and blood. The shepherds, they had a little help. Like, right, they had a little, little tip-off from heaven, like, hey, go, go check this baby. And what was the sign that was told to the shepherds? You'll find a baby wrapped in cloth. Is that a sign? Is that a significant? How many babies wrapped in cloth were in Bethlehem that night? Probably quite a few. The sign was where he was lying in a manger, this, this feeding trough. That's the sign. And, um, and later on, the Magi, they come, and they're, 
apparently there's something about their heart that's pure enough that they can see God, that they recognize and they worship this child. And, and, but think about how many people walked past the cave that night. I mean, think about how many people just like walked past the cave. God, the greatest miracle uh, to that point in history that had ever happened, happened in that cave. And, and there were probably, what, who knows how many people just like, walking by and whistling a little tune. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Probably not. Probably not whistling that tune. Um, but here's the thing about Christmas is like I think this continues to happen is that like there's this miracle of God's presence that's available to us like just in the common the ordinary places of our life but most of the time most of us are unaware of it and we just sort of whistle past the cave you know just sort of going on with life and we miss the miracle and this Christmas like I don't want to be one of those people like, I, I want to be somebody who's pure in heart, who has a desire to see God and to see the miracle. And I hope you do too. I, hope, I think that's why you're here, like on, to, as in a worship gathering um, on this Christmas Sunday morning is because there's something inside of you that wants to see God, that wants to see this miracle. And, and to be pure in heart, as Jesus says, to be pure in heart to, is to have the ability to see God, to perceive God as God actually is, not as we would have God be. To, to be pure in heart is to perceive God as God is actually revealed in the person of Jesus, not in some sort of like way that we've conjured up, like this is what God must be like, this idea I have in my head and then I like whew, project that onto God, this is what God is like, but to see God as God actually is. And I'm fairly convinced that without a desire to know God and experience God deeply, we may very well miss him. We may walk right past the cave. Um, Jesus, like you, you imagine, you know, so Jesus, he, he, he grows up, he starts his public ministry. Crowds of people are attracted to his teaching. Like there, there's power in this guy. He's healing people. And so one day, uh, Jesus is sort of moving, um, moving around teaching, and this large crowd of people gather around him to hear him, and Jesus goes up on a mountainside, and he sits down. He, he takes a seat, as Jewish rabbis often did, and his disciples, his apprentices, followers, gathered around him, sat at his feet, and the crowds of people listened to him, and he starts teaching what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses in, a few sentences in, he says these words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But how many people in this setting, in this crowd, actually realized that it was the mouth of God who was speaking these words. How many people were actually able to perceive that this is God? This is the presence of God in sandals on a mountainside. This is, uh, this is the uh, amazing news, is that this is what God is like. That, that in Jesus, the great gift that God has given us is God has taken away all the mystery for what God is like. Like, God has, has just sort of taken the clouds away, the sky, you know, the, the clouds have parted, and we can see clearly the character, the essence, the beauty of God, and it is clearly revealed in the person of Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And this is so powerful, because, um, because many of us, like, we're not able to kind of, like, to accept that because of what... Um, well, what the Bible talks about as, as sin, like we probably all familiar with this, this word sin and, and what it does maybe to the human heart, 
But uh, I want to introduce you to, uh, to an, a definition of sin from, um, from St. Augustine that maybe you haven't heard before. And it's this. It's in Latin. Sin is incurvatus en se. Everyone want to learn some Latin this morning? Incurvatus en se. You want to say that? I, like, last service I was reminded of uh, that scene from Braveheart where uh, his uncle, William's uncle, Adagail, says, you don't speak Latin. That's something we shall have to remedy and I also not. Um, for years, one of my friends and I, we got together on Christmas Eve and watched Braveheart. I don't know, like, I don't recommend that. I don't know, like, where that came from, but, yeah, just to let you in on the twisted nature of my own heart. <laughs> Sin is this... This, this, it's incurvatus insane, and it literally means the turning inward on oneself. What is sin? Sin is this curvature of the human heart that turns inward on itself. It's a twistedness. This, this twisted nature that, that, that turns us in a way that we live for ourselves. Now think about that. That's how St. Augustine defines sin. And think about all of the problems in our lives. All of the ways that our lives get turned into a mess. You think about your life, your family, your friends, like all of the ways that there's like, there's problems. And think if this definition doesn't fit that, what's causing those problems. And think about all the problems in the world. Think about the the big problems with humanity. And say like, this, this definition is pretty accurate, isn't it? Like this is the human condition, is that we have this inward turning of the human heart. Um, and we live with this inward orientation. Pride is a pretty easy example of this, right? Um, pride, that thing inside of us that says, me first. Like, me first. I want, I want to be first. I want credit. I want recognition. I want to be out front. Um, it takes shape in so many different ways. Defensiveness, like where we, we just feel the need to sort of like white-knuckle our stuff, our possessions, and we, we try to defend our territory and our stuff and People living in competition, and all I want is to find some peace of mind. Duplicity uh, is, a, I think, a product of this inward twistedness where we present ourselves one way, like we try to appear better than we really are. Duplicity. Um, you know, uh, protectionism. We talked about that a little bit. This even happens in the church sometimes. Like this, Christian people aren't sort of Im- immune to this inward twisting of the human heart. Um, right? Like, it's my seat. You're in my seat. Like, this is, this is where I sit. How did you not know that this was my job? How could you sit in my seat? Has that ever happened before? You ever feel it? We're, we're creatures of habit, right? And so we feel some ownership about, like, this is mine, my space. These are my preferences. I like these songs. I don't like those songs. You ever heard these things in church before? Or This is my style, not my style. And so this, like, inward curving, this twistedness, it, it happens in, in all of us. This is, this is the human condition. And um, one other example, uh, just around Christmas time, that sort of gives some data to this. Do you know the average American? The average American gives away less than 3% of their income to charity. Like, to, to something that's, like, outside of themselves, to something that's going to make the world a better place, the average American gives less than 3% of their income away to others. That means that the average American spends more than 97% of their income on whom? Themselves. 
this, this inward turning. This is, this is the impulse inside of us. This is what sin does to us. And it, this inward turning of the human heart, this inward curvature, it has an impact on the way we see God. Listen to what Psalm 18 says. This is so fascinating. Um, Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26. To the faithful, this is speaking to God, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, to the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. Now, anybody want to guess what the word devious actually means? It's up there. Is it up there? There you go. Twisted. To the twisted, you show yourself or you appear to be twisted. Like, this, this psalm, it, it's really fascinating that in some ways, like, our heart is the lens through which we see God and the world. And if this lens, if our heart is twisted in on itself, then it changes the way we perceive God. But to the pure in heart, Jesus says, they'll have the ability to perceive God, to see God as God actually is, but to the twisted, God looks twisted. Um... And this is what humans have always done, right? We've always taken our own ugliness inside of us and we've said, ah, that, that must be what God is like. Think about all of like, if you've ever like studied Greek mythology or even if you just kind of have some, just like a real basic knowledge, like you, you've heard these names. It, you, like look, look at Zeus and Apollos and, and Athena and Mars and, and going back further to, to ancient Canaanites, to Asherah and, and to the Babylonians, to Marduk. You look at these gods who they created, and, and they're, they're basically, they're, they're human-like like beings where they're, they use power the way people tend to use power, to control others. Um, they're filled with violence, and they're filled with lust. Like, we have this tendency as twisted human beings to make God in our own image. And, and, and unless we can actually allow God to purify our hearts and to see God the way God really is, we will continue to do this. Um, I don't know how many of you um, have, have conversations regularly with those who claim atheism. Um, and and there, are, there are really very few people who, if you, if you ask them enough questions, really own a position of atheism. Um, most people, who, who they reject God and they reject an idea of God, but they live in such a way that there is something outside of like human nature, outside of the natural world. But if you ever have a conversation, you sit down and you talk with somebody who, who claims the, the, the identity of an atheist, like one of my favorite things to do is to just say, tell me about this God who you've rejected. Tell me about this God who, who you don't believe in. And so they start to, to talk and they start to say, well, like this is, this is the way people talk about God. Um, and, and what you start to find is that most of the time they have this image of God or they've been told an image about God that God is pretty ugly, pretty grotesque, pretty distorted, pretty twisted, that God is angry, God is uh, violent, that God is judgmental, that God is waiting to punish people, that God is just like, you know, and maybe they've had these influences in their life that have like shaped that view of God on them. And one of my favorite things to do like in, in these conversations is to be able to say, you know what, like, I don't actually believe in that God either. Because see, people expect Christians to be really defensive. Like, no, 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 you have to believe. And to just step onto common ground and to say, you know what, this God that you've been sort of given, you've been handed, I don't believe in that God either. But can I talk to you about Jesus? 
And here's what you find, is that almost everybody has a high view of Jesus. Um, one of the most famous atheists the world has ever known, in fact, most atheists today who, who look back to, um, Frederick Nietzsche, he, he rejected God. He's the one who said God is dead. Um, and yet Frederick Nietzsche had a very high view of Jesus. He couldn't get over how Jesus had impacted the world and there was something compelling and magnetic about Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus is the very presence of God. That in Jesus, God has stepped into this world to take away all the mystery about what God is like, to clear up all of the ways that we have distorted the image of God, that to look at Jesus is to behold the very essence of God. Now, we're not like kind of church on Christmas that wants to say amen, but that is something that we could... We, could, we don't get accused of being Pentecostal very often around here, but there are moments when we could. Um, and I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that God's love is a remedy for the inward curvature of the human heart. That God's love is the remedy, the only remedy for this inward curvature of the human heart, this twisted nature. And this is what Ken Shigematsu says. Um, Ken Shigematsu, um, in his book, God in My Everything, he says, when we experience the love of God, something in us lifts and straightens. Do you love that? Like when we just encounter God's love in the person of Jesus, something inside of us is twisted. It lifts and it straightens. And we, we become the kind of people God has intended us to be. And, and this is what Jesus, like you, um, I've had this, this conversation going on for the last couple of weeks, I got, I got called a few weeks ago to, uh, to go and just care for a man who is near the end of his life. He, um, he's been battling cancer for a number of years, and the doctors basically just told him uh, several weeks ago that there, there's no more treatment that can be done for him and uh, to just sort of have him in comfort care. And so just this really heavy news. And um, so I've been going and visiting him, and he, he grew up, like, around Christianity, so he, he, he knows the story, and he, he's like, yeah, I know, I know Jesus, I know about Jesus, I know that he died, and, you know, I'm supposed to believe that he died for my sins and he rose again. So he, like, he has this understanding of, of pieces of the gospel. But as we start talking, it's pretty obvious he's never experienced Jesus. Like, he's never, like, deeply experienced Jesus. And so one of the things we start to do is I say, can I just, like, tell you stories about Jesus? And so we sit and talk and say, like, Jesus, one day, he, he walks into this town, right, this town of people that they were his enemies. They, like, his people, Jesus' people, his tribe wanted nothing to do with. They hated him. And so Jesus walks into this town, and he finds a woman who is dripping with shame just dripping with shame because of her past, because of decisions she had made, and she was an outcast in her, uh, in her own town, her own people. And Jesus, the very presence of God, he sits down with her, and he looks her in the eyes, and he starts talking to her. He engages her in conversation. And Jesus, as he, as he just begins to see her, something inside of her lifts and straightens. And Jesus is walking along the road, and there's a, a man who's who's blind and um, had, had really no place in society, just been tossed aside on the side of the road like a piece of garbage. And, and he couldn't see, but nobody else could really see him either. 
But Jesus saw him and heard his cry for mercy. And Jesus went to him and he saw him and he, he touched him and he spoke to him and he made him well. Like, and just to begin telling stories about Jesus and to say, like, this is God. This is what God is like. This is how God treats us. This is how God comes to us when we're broken and in pain and, and shame and guilt are the things that are controlling us. Jesus comes to us and lifts us Could you believe in a God like that? Could you love a God like that? Could you worship a God like that? This is good news. Jesus, he lived this love that was, um, the New Testament calls it agape. Um, It's it's a Greek word, um, and and agape is this other-oriented love. Um, There, it's coming. Um, Other-oriented love. And so you think about this in contrast, right? Like human nature is to be twisted in on itself, but agape, love, is outward. It is other-centered. And this is what Jesus was. Um, he, he lived this, this outward-oriented love that, that wasn't a feeling. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like something that happens to us. You don't fall into agape. You step into agape. You don't fall in love as the Bible defines love. You jump into love. You choose love. It's not something that happens to you. It's something you choose to do. Um, And this is what Jesus does. He just moves into the world and he he gives himself away, especially to those who couldn't repay him. Like he gives himself to the lost, to the broken, to the hurting, to those who, who didn't have the capacity to repay him in any way. This is who Jesus moves toward. And not only that, but Jesus actually moves toward those who don't want to repay him. Jesus actually says, and this is going to be the true test of whether you have experienced this agape of God, is whether you are willing to move in love toward those who don't want to repay you, who actually you would consider them your enemies. This is, the, this is how we know that God's agape has saturated our hearts. And this is what Jesus says again in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, like, this is what God is like. He, he causes his son and his rain to rise on the, his son to rise on the good and the evil alike. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That like God just lives with this indiscriminate, other-centered love. This is the, the center of the world is this other-oriented being revealed in Jesus. And, and if we step in and receive his love, this is what happens in our hearts. It lifts and straightens and it turns us outward toward the world. This is what the Apostle John says in John 4, verses 9 to 11. This is how God showed his agape among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is agape. Not that we agape God, but that he agape us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so agape us, we also ought to agape one another. God's love, God's other-oriented love is the remedy for the twistedness, the inward curving of the human heart. And, and this is the thing, this is the thing that like the world outside of Jesus cannot duplicate. They, there is no counterfeit to this. Um, this is why Christians, on the whole, um, give, give far more than 3% of their income to charitable causes. It's because they've been impacted by the agape of God, and they have to give it away. This is why Christians show up on the sites of disasters, natural disasters and, and wars where people have been displaced, and they stay longer than anyone else 
Because compassion is the outworking. This love, it has to go somewhere. It has to move outward. This is why, um, this is why Christians step into foster care and adoption at higher rates than any other population. It is because there is this love that they have experienced that has to be shared to, to step in to the love of God revealed in the person of Jesus is to have our hearts straightened and lifted and to begin living in the flow of love to give it away to others. This past week, um, there's a tragedy in the Haven community. And many of you are, um, you know, many of you are part of the community. You've gone to school there. It's, it's a close community here in Reno County. Um, but there's a, a young man, Eric Long, who's, who's a coach, uh, a para, a substitute teacher in the Haven schools, 26 years old, um, who took his own life on Friday night. And this, this absolutely tragic, tragic event that it just causes this, this sort of tsunami of pain through a family, through a community. One of the things that people like you do is step toward people in pain. Like you, you, you still, like while, while there's something inside of you that says, like, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, I'm going to step toward them. Um, because then they will need, this family will need people. They, they will need you to love them and support them in this time of incredible grief. And, and so this past week, um, our, our pastors, you know, we make a phone call to their family. Uh, we have some connections with their family and just say, like, we just want you to know that we are so sorry. And if there's anything we can do as a church, like, we're, we're here. And Journey is going to end up hosting the celebration of Eric's life on Thursday. And um, this, is what, this is what God's people do. We make space for people who are hurting and we move toward them. And so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that, that, that does this, that you guys, this is who you are. And, and so I want to encourage you, if you are connected to, to the Long family, if you have any connection, like please, like move, move toward them, bless them, be with them. Um, if you want to be a part of this gathering on Thursday, this incredibly difficult time right after Christmas, um, we, we need people who will make desserts and make salads and be here and help set up and all of those things. And so I just want to encourage you. I just want to encourage you to, um, yeah, to be, to be a part of this during this season. And maybe you have other people around you, maybe in your family, maybe um, neighbors, friends, who, who you just need to, like you need to take a step toward them and, and step into the flow of God's love. And so what I'd like to do is just to end this, uh, to end the sermon with three uh, simple prayers that are going to be on the screen. And uh, the worship team is going to come, and they're going to sing about the beautiful name of Jesus. And you can just, you can just hang out where you are, and I want to invite you, if, if the Spirit prompts you, and you want to pray these prayers, you can make them your own, put them in your own words. Whatever God is speaking to you to do, to just sort of rest in that. Um, and then the worship team is going to lead us and we're going to sing a, a couple more songs.
beautiful name.